You can take your Bible and turn to Psalm 119. Uh, we're in the middle of a, uh, of a sermon series out of the book of Ephesians. Today, we step away from that to uh, deal with, uh, with a principle of the Reformation, Scripture alone. Most of you got uh, in the bulletin there the original title to this sermon, which was, um, if I, I had to look back, I wrote it Monday, uh, and I've changed the title. Scripture alone, the foundation to orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Orthodoxy being right belief, orthopraxy being right living. And so, I still believe that. But I've changed the title, and the title of this sermon is now, Sweeter Than Honey and More Firm Than a Rock. Psalm 119, 97 through 104. There's been an unprecedented crisis in the church in the last 200 years as to the question, can we trust the Scriptures? Can we believe the Bible? There's been a wholesale loss of a sense of authority when it comes to God's Word in our day. In the last 200 years, we could say. To understand this issue and and what all is involved in this issue, I'm convinced that we have to go back to the 16th century and the Reformation as we know it, the Protestant Reformation. The central issue of that Reformation was this, that salvation was by justification through faith alone. That was the instrumental reason for the Reformation. When Luther studied the book of Romans, along with his lectures from Psalm, as a Roman monk, as an as, as a young man, as he studied those things, and he came to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, where it says, The righteous shall live by faith. He began to question what he had been taught from a child. Have you ever done that? Have you ever questioned your Sunday school teacher from when you were a child? Hey, I question a lot of things that I learned as a child, okay? I can remember uh, as a child learning in, that heaven, and I'm, I'm butchering the woman that was teaching. I know I am. I'm sorry. This is not direct. This is what she said, though. In, in a nutshell, when you die and go to heaven, you're going to eat lots of chocolate or your favorite food, do your favorite activity, and you'll be young again. This, this was all of heaven. As a child, for me. As you can tell, I now repudiate that. I don't believe that, that that's all heaven is. I believe heaven is a glorious place. And I believe some of the things she said may occur there uh, in some form. But the crux of what heaven is, the crux of eternity is being with Christ. Right. And so that's 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 I question that, you know, well, Luther began to question what he'd been taught by his church and by his father. And he began to really dig into the scriptures, into the word of God. As he says, I began to shake every limb and every branch of God's holy word to shake out what fruit might be there. And then after shaking it loose, I began to examine it until I found that the word of God is fruit for living, for life. And so. He, he got the message. He got that Scripture is sweeter than honey and it is firmer than a rock. He understood it. He understood it and he believed in this principle. But the, but the thing that he did when he shook, the, one of the first fruits which came to him was that we are saved not by works. 
Now, that's revolutionary for a Roman Catholic in the 1500s. Not by works, not by indulgences, not by going to Mass, not by taking the, Lord, the communion, not by being baptized as a child, not by any other method, are we saved, but by faith in Christ and His work alone. This is the way we're saved. He got that from Romans chapter 3, by the way. He kept reading past Romans 1, and his answer to Romans 1 came in Romans 3. He is now the just and the justifier of those who believe, have faith in Jesus Christ. In his margin of his text, he wrote, faith alone. And, and so birthed the belief and the foundation of the Reformation. He pressed that, and he began to really press this material issue of the Reformation, which was the debate over justification uh, by faith alone. The formal issue, the, the formal issue, the structure in which the whole debate happened was that Scripture is the final authority. So the, the instrumental cause, uh, with the material cause, we might say, let's put that, the material cause is that... We are saved by faith alone. That's what they were holding on to. That's what they believed in as reformers. And the structure which they arrived at that belief in was the belief that God's Word is our sole authority. Now, why was that controversial? Because the church had built a strategy whereby our authority, the church in his day believed, was Scripture, the councils of the historic church, and the word of the inerrant pope. For Luther, he said, Popes err. Councils of men err. The Word of God alone is true. That, was, that became the structure, the outline, to build his life on. And I hope that's your outline. I hope that's your foundation. I hope that's your belief. Let me give you a little bit of how this unfolded, okay? I'm not trying to turn this, as we've said a couple times, into a history lesson, but history has fallen on bad times. Not many people know what happened. They know about the Reformation. They don't know what happened. I'll boil it down this way. Martin Luther began two debates after nailing those 95 Theses to the door, which by itself was not an act of revolution nor reformation. That's the way you challenge people to debate in his day. He was not trying to start a new church. He was trying to get somebody to talk to him in the church. You ever been in that position? Or you just want the church leadership to actually acknowledge you and talk to you. He couldn't get them to talk to him. So he said, okay, I'll go to the square and I'll nail it on the church door and they'll have to answer. And they answered. They answered. And two debates spun out of that historic event of nailing the 95 Theses to the church door with the Roman Catholic theologians of the day. Martin Eck was one of the men he, he debated, and uh, Cardinal Casserton. As Eck debated the subject of justification, and as, as he began to, to dig down into Luther's beliefs and what he was writing, they pointed out, the church, the Roman church pointed out that Luther's view differed significantly from the position of the church, the official position of the councils of the church. The Roman church, Catholic church, both the former uh, church councils and the Pope or the papal declarations were binding on all church members and especially those who were preaching. They were monks in the church, so they were binding. These men were able to demonstrate that Luther was in disagreement with both church councils and papal decree, what the Pope had said. And so they thought they had him. Well, Martin Luther was perceived by many as being the most arrogant and pomp pompous 
uh, individual. They could not understand how one man could do as Luther was doing. They could not grasp how Luther uh, would say, who do you think, they, they would say to Luther, who do you think you are that you would presume to know more than the church and the church councils and the Holy Father in Rome? Who do you think you are? You're just a little peasant monk. In these days, in the debates, Luther was asked if he stood against the Pope and against the councils. Well, Luther admitted publicly that he indeed, indeed did stand against the Pope and he did stand against the councils. In his opinion, church councils could err and the Pope himself could err. Of course, this was a disturbing point, a blasphemous statement to those he was debating. Luther was quickly likened to the Bohemian John Huss. Now, that may mean nothing to you. But Huss and the Hussites were the beginning of the Reformation, really, back in the 1400s. The swan of Huss, Luther would say, is not silent. In other words, they called him the swan. That was his nickname. I don't, I don't know all the history of that, okay? But they burned him at the stake because he believed in the Word of God. And, and Luther picked up on that, and he pushed it further. And, and so people were dying for the Bible you hold in your hand. If, if you walk away today without knowing that, you've missed some things here. Listen, you have, I have, I don't know, how many copies of this do you have in your, work, in your church? I mean, in your house? Three? How many? Anybody got ten copies? Ten copies? Ten? Twenty maybe? Twenty? In Martin Luther's day, no one... No one in Germany in a common household would have had a Bible. Not that they could read. The church didn't want them to have it. Why didn't the church want them to have it would be a good question to ask. But nobody was asking because they kept the people in the dark. In the dark. Because in the dark, men can connive, deceive, gain power, and rule as tyrants over God's church. Luther was once questioned about this Bible you hold in your hand. You hold it in your hand, not in, in, the, not in Latin, neither in Greek or in Hebrew, which, by the way, Greek and Hebrew translations were illegal. Only the Latin could be read. No one spoke Latin in Germany. No one spoke Latin in England. You don't speak Latin. But all their preaching and all their... All the word was in Latin. Someone asked him one day, Brother Luther, would you have the plowman? Would you have them with, a, with the word of God? Do you trust them with the word of God? Is that what you want? Do you know what kind of chaos comes from that? To put it in our days vernacular, Luther said, yes, I do know. And I believe that a plowman... Reading the Word of God with a faithful heart is more powerful than any church council or any pope. One plowman can go to the Word of God. One simple man can go to the Word of God and know salvation. And he can in, him, in the Word of God find more power than anything the church has ever done. And so this was this firebrand. Luther is one of my favorite characters. He, uh, he left his study often at the end of the day. Around 4 o'clock, went to the local pub, drank with the miners, 
and preach to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. He, in those conversations, converted many to Christianity. And while he was there, he was often guilty of being fairly harsh with his tongue. Don't emulate Luther in everything he does is what I'm saying. At the end of his life, he was. Uh, he was uh, overcome with illness and sickness and much pain physically. And I believe it's from that that he began to lash out against uh, different groups of people. And those writings are very troubling. I admit that. But I do believe Luther, in, in, in throughout his days, championed a cause. And the cause was God and His glory. And the cause was built around the Word of God. So, that's just to give you a little bit into who Luther was. He was a firebrand. He, he used his tongue sharply. He said things I would hope you wouldn't say and I wouldn't say. He was not perfect. He was a sinner. But more than anything, he was consumed with God. And he was consumed with his word. Luther uh, drove people uh, to a complete uproar. Luther was excommunicated. And uh, the price of the church was put on his head. In other words, anyone could arrest him and have him killed. Because of his teachings. Finally, in 1521, an attempt was made for one final resolution between the church and their wayward son. Officials and princes of both the church and the state met at the imperial diet convened in the towns of Worms in Germany in the presence of the Holy Roman Emperor Charles himself. Luther was summoned to this, this meeting, and after being given safe passage of conduct, which meant that he could travel there without the fear of being arrested or killed, he, he appeared before his inquisitors. And they demanded, without horns and teeth, Brother Luther, do you or do you not repudiate your books and the errors which they contain? Notice especially the words... Uh, of Luther here. He said, my conscience, in, in that he, he said, I will answer without horns and without teeth. I do not repudiate my works. And he went through a long statement, and this is the conclusion. My conscience is held captive by the Word of God. Well, Luther, to Luther, God's words were, were binding. They had authority far beyond a church and far beyond church leaders. Luther left this meeting riding out into the night and on his way home he was kidnapped by his own people, by a kind prince, who transferred him to a castle in Wurtburg where he translated the Bible into German, which was, he said, the greatest work he ever accomplished. The Reformation was sparked by Luther and swept over most of Europe in the next century. At Worms, the second slogan of the Reformation at this Diet of Worms, this meeting he went to, the second slogan after Sola Fide was Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Now, that's fallen into some bad hands in our day. John MacArthur wrote, Sola Scriptura, the formal principle of the Reformation, is essential to genuine Christianity. Yet this doctrine is under attack like never before. Christians who want to defend their faith must have a basic knowledge of this doctrine, know how to support it with Scripture proofs, and be able to discern the enemy's attacks against it. So, here we have a modern man, a modern pastor who we respect, who says that this is what we, where, we, where we have to take our stand on Scripture alone. 
And I believe that. Why do I believe that? Why, when you go to most systematic theology books, I know that's what you do on the weeknights when you're bored, you go get your systematic theology book out and you read. I know that's what you do. Why, when you go there and you open up the, the, the beginning and you look at the introduction and you see the list of topics, why in Protestant uh, systematic theologies do you normally find the very first discussion is over what subject? The Scripture. But, but theology is about God, you would say. Yes. But you can't know God unless you believe that His Word is inspired and inerrant, completely sufficient and all authoritative, the Bible as we have it today. If you don't believe that, you'll believe anything about God. You'll believe, you, if, you, if you don't believe the Word of God to be the Word of God, you, can get your, you might as well get your theology out of Charlie Brown. It's just as good. But if you believe that the Word of God is inerrant, if it is God's breathed words, and it is totally authoritative, it is what we build our life on, then you can have right thoughts about God. You can have right beliefs about God. You can build your life on that rock. And it tastes sweeter than honey. What is Sola Scriptura? Well, I've I, I stole this list a little. I, I've rearranged it some, but this is not original to me. Sola Scriptura. What is Scripture alone and what is it not? It is not. We're going to deal with the nots. If you're taking notes, you write these down. So, the belief in Scripture alone is not these things. First and foremost, it is not a claim that the Bible contains all knowledge. We are not saying that if you're studying to be a biochemist, your textbook should be the Bible. That's not what we're saying. There's nothing about biochemistry in detail in the Bible. Okay? All knowledge is not contained in the Bible. The Bible is not a science scientific textbook it's not a manual on how to run your government it's not a catalog on automobile engine parts that's not what the bible is the bible does not claim to give us every bit of knowledge that we could ever obtain it doesn't claim that and we're not claiming that secondly the belief in scripture alone is not a claim that the bible is an exhaustive catalog of all religious knowledge we're not even saying the Bible contains all religious knowledge. That's not what we're claiming. The Bible itself asserts that it is not exhaustive in every detail in John 21:25. Jesus' life contained many details that we don't know and they're not in the Bible, is what I'm saying. It's obvious that the Bible is not exhaustive, <clears throat> but it does not have to be exhaustive to be sufficient. It does not have to be exhaustive to be the source of divine revelation to us. Just because you don't have all of knowledge and you cannot know everything does not, does not mean you can know nothing. Okay? It doesn't mean you have to have all true knowledge to have any knowledge. It means whatever knowledge the Bible gives us is true and it is sufficient for us. That's what we're claiming. Right, I'm getting ahead. I'm still in what not, okay? <laughs> Scripture is not a denial of the authority of the church to teach God's truth. Now, this one is <clears throat> becoming more rampant. 
in churches today, evangelical churches today. They're changing what the Reformers said and what we believe. Scripture alone does not equal Scripture only. You write that down. Scripture alone does not mean Scripture only. You say, but that's, that's what I believe is Scripture only. If that's what you believe, then you find yourself to be the chief interpreter of the Bible as you read it. And no man can teach you. No church has ever rightly divided the Word of God. And you set yourself or your church above all other churches as the sole interpreters of the Bible. That's not what Scripture alone teaches. Scripture alone does not outright deny all church councils. As a matter of fact, we, we confess a lot of statements from church councils. We agree that the church has been passed down, or the church has passed down to us a distilling, an understanding of Orthodox Christianity. We don't deny all of history at this church. We're not recreating the will here. We want to be one spoke in the will for the glory of God. That's all we want to be. And there's a lot of spokes, and they stretch throughout time. So we're not denying the church, and we're not denying the authority of men to teach. Fourth, Scripture alone is not a denial that the Word of God has, at times, been spoken rather than written. I believe fully that Abraham received verbal inspiration, verbal commands from God. Moses did, the prophets did, and others have received verbal teachings from God. We're not denying that by saying that we believe in the written Word of God alone. It did happen. What we're saying is that now that the Word of God is written, this alone is the authority that we have. We don't base it on private interpretation nor on our own revelations received through any other medium. But through this, this is where we learn of God. Okay, but that, but other other uh, mediums, other ways of communication were used by God in times past, and we don't deny that at all. Okay. Fifth, Scripture alone does not entail the rejection of every kind or form of church tradition. The Scripture alone simply means that any tradition, no matter how ancient, how how right it may seem to us must be tested by a higher authority, and that authority is the Bible. Okay? Finally, Scripture alone is not a denial of the role of the Holy Spirit in guiding the church. We believe the Holy Spirit guides us. We don't believe He is inactive in our lives. He's very active. So what is it? I've said what it is not. What is this belief? The doctrine of Scripture alone simply stated is that Scripture alone are sufficient, is sufficient to function as the regulative principle, the infallible rule of faith for the church. Scripture alone is the rule of faith for the church. Not councils, not churches, not men's opinions. Second, all that one must believe to be a Christian is found in Scripture. Everything you need to believe is in Scripture, and it can be found in no other source. There's no other holy books. This is it. It is uh, this not to say that the necessary beliefs of faith could not be summarized in a shorter form. Sure, we could rewrite things and, and take things from the Bible and write them shorter than the 66 books. But it's necessary to believe that the doctrine 
that we have in the Bible is perfect and is written exactly as God intended it to be written. Okay? Number three. That which is not found in Scripture, either directly or by necessary implication, is not binding upon a Christian. If it's not in the Scripture, directly commanded or implied clearly, you're not bound to it. You're not bound to it. Scripture reveals those things necessary for salvation. I've said that, but i say it again. And finally, all traditions are subject to the Scriptures. <clears throat> Why have I talked about history that happened almost 500 years ago? Why have I spent so much time in the introduction? I told you today's different. Usually I'm way deep in the Bible by now, but I'm talking about the Bible. And I'm talking about history. Why? Because the cause of the event of the Reformation is still relevant for our day. The battle in our hearts, the battle in our minds over the inspiration, the sufficiency, the authority, and the beauty of God's Word is being waged every day. Every day. And without the backdrop of this history, you will, one, never fight... You'll just accept whatever the culture gives you. Or two, you will think you've fought all alone. And you need to be held up. You need to be held up by this history. R.C. Sproul is often called a giant in theology in our day. And, I, and he truly is a giant in comparison to most men in our day. He is a giant in theology. But I've heard him say it many times. He is not a giant. He simply stands on the shoulders of men who've come before him. He simply stands on the shoulders of men who come, who've come before him. And so I'm giving you some of the taste of what those men believed and what we have accepted as our belief to prepare us for what I'm going to teach out of Psalm 119. The, I want us to be prepared to fight this battle. It's still waging. In our day. It is a battle for the glory of God. I hope you're at Psalm 119 already. If you're not there, you need to be. I'm going to go through 97 through 104. There are a lot of great things in this text. This is a great text that I could have used. Uh, and, there, and I could have used any number of great texts on this subject of Scripture alone. The Bible is not. But, but I chose this text specifically and strategically. Because the Bible the Bible is not a stuffy book of facts. The Bible is not a book of beauty. The Bible is the Word of God which is inherently true and beautiful. It's both. It's true and it's beautiful. And so that's why I chose this text. Let's read it together, 97 through 104, and then make some observations together. Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemy, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. 
Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. The psalmist writing here about the Word of God, and as he does throughout Psalm 119, he holds it up as a book, as a truth, a book of truth that is beautiful. Truth that is tasty. Truth that you must see and you must taste. Have you ever thought about the Bible this way? I want to pose that question to you before we get to the observations. Could you say, honestly, the Bible is sweeter than honey? Could you proclaim, like the psalmist in another writing, when he said, taste and see, taste and see that the Lord is good? Is that what you could say about God? Is that what you could say about His Word? If not, I'm afraid you've fallen into a trap that is very dangerous for people like us. You've turned the Bible into a book of stuffy facts. The Bible is not about a relationship with Christ, the one who is revealed to us through this Word. The Bible's about the Bible. I've, I've said this before, but it's, it's still true, so I'm going to say it again. In seminary, most everybody has turned the Bible into a book of stuffy facts. You go sit down in class and argue ad infinitum about things in this Word. And you dissect it and you tear it apart. And there's some advantage to that. But the fear I have for me and for anyone else who goes to seminary, though I recommend it highly, and if you want to know a good one, come see me. There's a lot of bad ones. I'll tell you some good ones to go to. The fear I have is this. That when you leave seminary, you have all you need. You're armed with all you need to see the Bible as a book of facts. But you have no idea what it means to taste. You have no idea what it means to see. And I think that's the danger for Grace Fellowship. We're on the streets arguing with our liberal friends and our atheistic friends and our agnostic friends about facts. And sometimes what they need to be brought to Christ is they need to know that you have experienced Him through that Word. You have tasted. You have seen. And so that's why I chose this text. Because we tend towards heady stuff here at our church, stuffy stuff here at our church. I want to push back and say... Are we tasting and seeing? So here's some things I see in the passage, and we'll do them together. We as believers should love the Word of God. I see that in verse 97, part A. There, there's, there's nothing complicated about what I do. Because it says, oh, how I love your law. We as people of God should love God's Word. I'm a genius, aren't I? Listen, we should love this word. I've told you about men, Aaron's mentioned men who died for this word. I've, I've seen in Orlando, in the scripturum, scriptorium there, a collection of Bibles, ancient Bibles. I've seen a martyr's Bible. You know, you go through and see these old Bibles that were written centuries ago, translated centuries ago, and you're just amazed. And then you get to the end of the line and they've got this group of Bibles 
where there's blood staining the page. And your tour guide tells you these men, this was their personal Bible. And when they were killed for believing the words of this scripture by the church, before their throat was slit, they chose their favorite passage, leaned their heads over, and they gave their lifeblood onto the pages of the book. You don't do that for a book which you know to be true. Only you do that for a book that you have tasted and it is sweeter than honey. You do it for a book which you saw the living Jesus Christ through. You don't die for facts. You die for a relationship. That is how much we should love this word. I asked you how many Bibles are in your home. When's the last time you picked it up? Opened its pages. And read it. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. But we can champion Scripture alone, Scripture alone, Scripture alone at the Bible on our coffee table is gathering dust. We don't believe it. We can get in arguments about evolution and creation and whether, you know, whether Christ is really God in the flesh or whether He's just God or whether He's just flesh. We can get into arguments with the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses all day. And I'm not saying we shouldn't. But if the Bible which we own and God has blessed us with lays unused on the table or in the drawer or on the shelf, we don't believe Scripture alone. The people of God should love His Word. Love His Word. You wouldn't die for something you don't read and something you don't believe and something you don't find infinitely valuable. I would say that most of us, if someone came around today and said, I'm rounding up all Bibles. If you don't give me your Bibles, I will kill you. Most of us would show them where they are. And we would give them gladly. Even if we knew we'd never have another one, we'd give it away because this life is precious and our family is precious and our church is precious and our work is precious. But His Word, His Word is dispensable. And not to the psalmist. Your law is what I love. So we as God's people should love the law. And how do we know He loved the law? It is the meditation. It is my meditation all day. Do you see the connection? You can tell me I love God's Word. But if you never open it, if you never meditate on it, you never memorize it, you never put it into practice, I can tell you I love Charlie Brown comic strips. That doesn't mean I read the funny papers anymore. I can say anything through my lips I want to say. But my life has to be behind what I say before you believe it. We as God's people should love His Word. Second, we as believers should meditate on God's Word. Now that's the second point of how we know He loved the Word. But then we see it not end in 97, but look in 98. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies. Connect... For it is ever with me to meditation all day long. I have no more, I have more understanding than all my teachers. Connect, for your testimonies are my meditation to, it is my meditation all day long. 
I understand more than the aged. For I keep your precepts. So, we as God people should love the word and we as God's people should meditate on the word. Now, meditation. Uh, I've, I know many of you are in, uh, in, in a little bit of a trap here because you've thought of meditation as Eastern meditation. Sitting and clearing the mind, emptying the mind, um, sitting and humming, sitting with some fluty music playing in the background, palms open, palms down, palms closed. I know. I find it rather frou-frou myself. And I don't do it. Okay? Uh, I don't do it. I don't participate in it. But I do meditate. So what is meditation? In the Bible, unlike Eastern meditation, in the Bible's meditation, it is not to clean the mind out. It is to fill the mind up. And what do we fill the mind with? The Word of God. Meditation for the psalmist was not sitting palms extended in a prayer stance. Meditation for the psalmist was traveling through the wheat fields, starving half to death, and quoting and understanding in his mind that the Word of God is sweeter than honeycombs. And understanding that in the very depth of his heart. Meditation is like the crock pot of Scripture study. Every week before I get ready to preach, on Monday morning, I have the text which I'm going to preach that week in my mind. And it stays there constantly. Everything I do that whole week goes through the grid of that one scripture, whatever it is I'm teaching. Every story I hear, every TV show I see, every ball game I watch, every conversation I have, every place I go, everything else I read and take into my mind goes into the crock pot through the distillation of that scripture. That's meditating. Meditation is turning on the crock pot and letting it slow cook. What happens when you cook a roast in the oven? Now, I know you can't cook a good roast in the oven. Okay. Sometimes. But it's kind of hit or miss, isn't it? You put the roast in the oven. You cooks know what I'm saying. You put the roast in the oven. You, you come over where you put it in the oven. You cook it. Sometimes it's tender. Sometimes you take it out. It's tough. It's like shoe leather. It don't do anything any different. But it's just being cooked really fast. But even a bad piece of meat. If you put it in the crock pot, marinate it up, close it up, leave for work, it doesn't take a great cook. It takes time, applied energy and heat, and the meat falls apart. It comes open. It's not the talent of the cook. It's the process which the meat has been through. Marinated and placed under intense, controlled, pressured heat caused the meat's fat and muscle tissue to break down so that you can stick your fork in it and it falls apart. That's meditation. Some of us only get the oven roast because we're late getting up and we flip open the Bible and we do the, you know, the closed eye and poke method, find a verse, read it and say, man, that's awesome. And we're out the door. And we never think of it again. What the psalmist did, the reason that the Word of God was something he loved was he meditated on it, which was to fill his mind with it and to 
roll it over again and again and again. And all of life passed through the grid of that scripture. Every decision he made, every statement he made, every conversation he entered, every job he did passed through the window of that scripture to get further understanding. Meditation. So we should meditate on the Word of God. Some of us need to worry less about volume of Scripture we've studied or read and more about how we have studied and read. Listen, if you don't get to the end of the paragraph, it's okay. If you read a sentence and it's all you can take in, it's all right. Take it in. Let it soak. And it will change you. It transforms the mind. We as believers, thirdly, should keep the Word of God. We should keep the Word of God. And he transitions from this meditation action into keeping. And that's interesting to me. The order is meditation then keeping. Not keeping and then meditating. So he can't keep the Word of God if he doesn't meditate on the Word of God. I understand more than the age because I keep your precepts. I know I keep my feet from evil. Because I keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. You have taught me. So, meditation leads to action. So you say, how do you know you love the word of God? I mean, I can say I love the word of God, but how do you know, Carlton? How do I know? Well, is it your meditation? And are you keeping it? It doesn't do any good to say, I love the Word of God, and then break every commandment and every rule and every principle in the Scripture. I mean, that's just, it's a contradiction. It's a contradiction. It's not true. And so, we see here that the psalmist says meditation leads to keeping. And finally, we as believers should delight in the Word of God. We should delight in the Word of God. And this is the last section is the reason I chose this scripture over Romans 12, 1 through 2 or, and 3 or 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 16 or so many other great passages, Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. There's a ton of scriptures that could have been used for this, this message. But this passage right here contains the reason. Because you meditate on it and you keep it. But that doesn't, that's not the end. You need to, you must delight in it. It must be, become what you find your joy in is the Word of God. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I, have, I, I hate every false way. The uh, sweetness of the Word of God. I, I confess to you, this is where I struggle. Because more often than not, where I struggle is in the relationship with the person of Jesus Christ through the Word of God. The words of, that, of this scripture are ultimately true only because they are God's Word and they reveal to us who God is and how we know Him. And so if you stop at the point of the level of commas and periods, meanings of words, connections of sentences into paragraphs, if that's, if that's where you stop, you're no different than a higher critic. 
You're no, you're no different than a liberal theologian who dissects the Word of God and dismisses its mythology, as they call it. You're no better. What separates a true conservative opinion of the Bible is that we believe it's through that Word that we find and know Christ. And we have a relationship with Him. And so, no sermon, no preaching is complete unless Christ is exalted. So, what is it that the psalmist has tasted that is so sweet to his taste? Well, look back at Psalm 19. We read it this morning. And um, listen to this, the connection between what I've been teaching and then this text. Written by the same man. Verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul. He's not interested in just that it's perfect. That it's right. It has made his soul alive. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It makes wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart. You hear the emotion. The commandment of the Lord is pure. Enlightening. Giving sight to the eye. The fear of the Lord is clean. It endures forever. The rules of the Lord are true. And they're righteous altogether. Verse 10 is the connection. More to be desired are they, these words, the Word of God, than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also are they than the honeycomb and its drippings. Moreover, by them your servant is warned in keeping them. There is great reward. Verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. My rock and my redeemer. The word of God is sweeter than the drippings of a honeycomb. And it is the rock which we base our life on. That's the difference between the psalmist and me. I stop with the precepts are true often. I stop with the rules are right. I stop with I win the argument. He goes to I have a relationship. I I rejoice in my heart. I meditate on it day and night. It's, I taste it. It's sweet. I see it. It's beautiful. You know, we um, this morning in our Sunday school time looked at the life of one of the martyrs of the 20th century, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he wrote a section, a quick section, and I end with this quote. A quick section. In 1936, he writes this to his brother-in-law, who is a liberal theology professor. He writes this. First of all, I will confess quite simply, I believe that the Bible alone is the answer to all of our questions and that we need only to ask repeatedly and a little humbly in order to receive this answer. They've been arguing about truth. But listen to where he goes. One cannot simply read the Bible like other books. One must be prepared really to inquire of it. Only thus will it reveal itself. Only if we expect from it the ultimate answer shall we receive it. He was a higher critic by training. He was taught to read this book like all other books. And he's saying you can't just read it like all other books. It holds the truth to life. That is because in the Bible God speaks to us. 
When's the last time you went to your devotional time and said, God's going to speak to me? And you read His Word. And one cannot simply think about God in one's own strength. One has to inquire, ask God to think of God. Only if we seek Him will He answer us. Of course, it's also possible to read the Bible like any other book. That's to say, from the point of view of textual criticism. There's nothing to be said against that. I do that, is what he's saying. Only that is not the method which will reveal to us the heart of the Bible, but only the surface. Just as we do not grasp the words of someone we love by taking them to bits, but by simply receiving them, so that for days they go on lingering in our minds meditation, simply because they are the words of a person we love. And just as these words reveal more and more of the person who said them to us as we go on like Mary pondering them in our hearts, so it will be with the words of the Bible. Only if we will venture to enter into the words of the Bible as though in turn them this God were speaking to us who loves us and does not will to leave us alone with these questions. Only so shall we learn to rejoice in the Bible. As Mary did, putting them in her heart. That's what he says. If it is, if, if it is I who determine where God is to be found, then I shall always find a God who corresponds to me in some way, who is obliging, who is connected to, with my own nature. If I can go find God anywhere from any source, guess what? He'll look a lot like me. But if I'm forced to go to the Bible, he says, but if God determines where he is to be found, then it will be in a place which is not immediately pleasing to my nature and which is not at all congenial to me. This place is the cross of Christ. And whoever would find him must go to the foot of the cross, must go through the Sermon on the Mount and the commands. This is not according to our nature at all. It is entirely contrary to it. But this is the message of the Bible, not only in the New, but also in the Old Testament. And I would like to tell you now, quite personally, since I have learned to read the Bible in this way, and this has not been for so very long, it becomes every day more wonderful to me. I read it in the morning and in the evening, often during the day as well. And every day I consider a text which I've chosen for the whole week and try to sink deeply into it so as really to hear what it is saying. I know that without this I could not live properly any longer. That's in 1936. In 1945, on a crisp April morning... Dietrich Bonhoeffer died. He was hung. He was executed by the Nazis at the personal request of Adolf Hitler. Why? Because he didn't stop with this word is true. But he believed it to be true and he believed it to be sweeter than honey. Because he not only saw the precepts were right, but he applied them in his life and he meditated on them every day, and the outworkings of his life became a loathsome, hateful sight in the presence of his enemies. And he was killed in this life, and he was set free to live for eternity, because he knew the Christ of this Scripture. So on this Reformation Day, we've missed the point. We've missed the chance. 
We've missed the opportunity if all we do is leave here with a stuffiness. We've missed it if all we do is leave with a beauty. We got it if we understand that the Bible is inherently true because it is the Word of God. Therefore, it is beautiful. Let's pray. Father, Your Word is beautiful.